listening to the Learning to Believe Again podcast with your host, Brittany Bexton. Where do you begin when you're learning to believe again? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the episode. I have a special guest on today, and I'm going to kind of give a disclaimer up front. This episode is going to be about domestic abuse. And, you know, I've talked about this a little bit before. My friend Shannon Davis has come on and talked about it with me. One of the things I always share is that, you know, domestic abuse happens to women. It happens to men. It happens to all age groups, all ethnicities, all financial statuses. So I have a special guest on today who is a man who is going to be talking about how he was abused. And my disclaimer is that we are changing the names in this episode because, you know, there are still children involved and other people where it's, it's not appropriate for their names to be out there because it could be detrimental for, for the kids and the situation. That said, I am so glad to have him on because, you know, men get abused just as frequently as women, but very, very, very rarely are they willing to talk about their experience. And I know that the more we talk about the fact that it happens and what it is like, the more it takes away any false concepts about it or any false beliefs around it. So I just want to thank you for that. So we are going to be referring him to him today as John Deere. So welcome, John Deere. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me on. Of course. So I know that you are a Christian and you have some Christian background. Have you been a Christian your whole life or did you become a Christian later in life? Um, so I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Um, my dad is, uh, was an atheist agnostic growing up. And my mom, um, also, she used to be part of a Christian cult when she was younger. Both my parents are immigrants from a foreign country. Yeah. So she wanted nothing to do with God. She was kind of agnostic herself. So I started asking questions about God when I was young and I asked my dad and he said, well, you know, this life is all you get, son. So make the best of it. Now move. I'm trying to watch some TV. Uh, and that was that. And so I started kind of asking some of these existential questions, like what happens after I die and all that. Um, when I was kind of a boy and, um, eventually, uh, God worked his way that, um, I ended up going to a Christian school, despite the fact that my parents weren't Christians. And so I accepted Christ when I was about 12. Uh, and then when I was 16, I led my dad to the Lord. And he had a very powerful uh, transformation, like kind of Saul to Paul change in his life. My dad's very disciplined. And when he gets into something and gets convinced about it, he kind of goes after it 100%. Um, so he would do Bible studies. And so the change was powerful enough that my mom... Uh, got baptized afterwards, which was not good for 
um, the cult that she was a part of, because if you got baptized at all, it was kind of like you're asking to get excommunicated. So when my parents started to share the gospel with my mom's family, they kind of kicked her out of the family for a little bit. So, uh, yeah. Uh, apologetics is kind of my background. Um, and so I, I've come from that, but I also... Uh, have been drawn to kind of more Pentecostal uh, theology and um, experience. And so I'm very open to uh, the move of the Spirit. I'd like to see kind of those two, the head and the heart, kind of come together a bit more in the church. I think both sides can help each other. So, yeah, so that's just kind of my background. I do have um, some Christian education, uh, like from seminaries and stuff like that. So that's that's me. Awesome. So I'm going to kind of skip into the meat of it here because I set it up saying we were going to be talking about your experience with domestic abuse. So thank you for that background, because that is important. You know, the way people get through abuse and the things that go with it can vary. And I know for me, it has been so important to have relationship with the Lord. It's part of why I'm sane, you know, <laughs> and I'm sure for you, it's similar. I don't know where I'd be without that, honestly. So yeah, I can't imagine my life without God in it. So and yeah, without the, yeah. Uh, I don't think I'd, in, in a very important and real sense, I wouldn't really be me. Right. So I'd be somebody else. Right. So how did you meet your ex? So we met on online, actually on a dating app. Well, a dating website, because it was, it was a few years ago before there were apps. So it was just kind of spur of the moment. And so, yeah, I, I met her on a, a dating website and uh, we kind of, the first time I talked to her on the phone, we talked for a very, very long time, talking like all night. And uh, we got married six months after we met. So um, it was very intense, uh, very fast. And I was, I was young, like in my early 20s. And yeah, so it, it, it was, I wouldn't recommend that method, <laughs> I don't think, but I mean, I'm kind of, I've, I've seen people that like married, met the right people and they got married quickly and they had successful relationships. So I don't want to put like a box around that, but, um, where I was at the time, I just think I had a lot of wounds that hadn't healed, but also like, I also just fell in love too. And that's like a real thing that happens. And I don't think and sometimes that that happens to people you know like you just connect to somebody and you know like they scratch you where you itch and you fall in love and you just want to stay with them um i'm very loyal so and i don't think it's a bad thing so because of that i kind of pushed through some of the hard times but there were very big risks even while i was dating my uh like my my ex had claimed to have a very traumatic past 
came from a very, very dysfunctional family. And I know everybody says, oh, you know, so and so is from a dysfunctional family. Um, but by any conceivable metric, uh, this one would definitely fit the cake, you know, um, fit the requirements. We're talking like a history of physical abuse, severe emotional abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, neglect. Um, and these aren't just things that Jane claimed that happened. Um, I saw, well, not, I mean, I didn't literally see the sexual abuse, obviously, but I saw um, the effects of that. But I saw, I saw things happen in my own eyes. I saw people in her family get charged for, um, you know, and convicted of, you know, sexually abusing, like, nieces and nephews, you know, things like that. And... So it, there was definite proof that that stuff had gone around. So uh, part of that played on my compassion, in which I felt a lot of compassion for Jane. And I connected, and, and, you know, there was a bit of a superhero complex there for me, for sure. Um, and so that did draw me in. And I just kind of, I've always been kind of like a, you know, follow my heart a little too much sometimes so yeah now there were definite warning signs too um i saw a hellacious fight between jane and her mom who like i'm saying this is one of these fights it was over the flowers at our wedding you know they were trying to plan and it was like jane felt being that her mom was being pushy but her mom but Jane also wasn't giving her mom feedback. And so it was just kind of this thing where like, okay, one, you know, her mom was just trying to help get those things ready for the flowers to make the wedding nice. And Jane didn't want to feel pushed and was kind of feeling overwhelmed and stuff. And it went from that to just this fight that was, uh, and anything goes kind of fight, like where the, the, the put downs and the yelling and the screaming was, was just, I mean, I came from an immigrant family that was loud. Right. But like loud was just kind of, we were all loud when we would cook and joke. And, you know, I've seen my parents, my, my, especially when they weren't Christians, like, and even after, like they got some, some not very cool fights either. I had never seen anything like this. And I saw Jane's dad sitting there, stoic, like a rock. He was just sitting there, and I got a glimpse of, like, wow, this could definitely be my future. And there was times in which I was about to stand up and say, hey, y'all don't got to fight about the flowers at the wedding because there ain't going to be one. I'm not going to marry into this. I was felt tempted to say that. And when I was about to, you know, Jane stormed out of the house, and the mom, and the mom said, good luck with her, <laughs> John. And... Uh, I kind of look back, and I'm like, good luck with her, lady. <laughs> I almost looked at, you know, her husband, and I'm like, good luck, dude. You know, what about you? Like, she was a monster. And But then when we got in the car, Jane just started crying. And I just felt so bad for her, you know, because I was like, she was raised by this. I was like, maybe if she was just loved and she was raised or she was in an environment where love was just the status quo and I could love her, Maybe she could heal from this stuff and just kind of move on, you know. Um, and then there was also a, a thing in which Jane had, you know, 
cheated on me with her ex-boyfriend when we were dating. Um, although she says it wasn't cheating because she broke up with me and then did something, you know, hooked up with her ex-boyfriend and then got back together with me, like, all in the span of three days, which, if you want to call that cheating or not, that's fine, but... So, uh, when no did... warning sign. When in so, your relationship did that happen? Was that... Yeah, four months in. Okay, were you already engaged then, or no? No, that was before we were engaged, we were dating, it was just out of the blue, like... She just comes up to me and, and was like, okay, we're done because God is calling me to be a missionary. Okay, well, then I guess I'll go with you. No, you don't even have, you don't care anything about missions. That's not what you're about. And I'm like, I'm open to missions. I, I, I don't know what God wants out of my life. And she's like, no, we need to break up. Okay. And it was like, she was cold as ice, like completely, I, I didn't even recognize her. And she disappears for two days, and then she came back, and she had, you know, <laughs> gone somewhere with her ex-boyfriend. And then kind of once that had happened, she ended up coming back to me, and I forgave her, you know? And so, during that time, I'm assuming she slept with the ex-boyfriend. Yes. So she's saying that she's following God, and she's going to go on a missions trip, but she does something by sleeping with an ex in those two days that yes. is completely contra indicative <laughs> or counter indicative to what she's claiming she wants. Yeah. But then the way that for me is that, well, given her sexual, the way I justified it and is that given the fact that she had had sexual abuse and is that, you know, people that have gone through that, like maybe that that's a hard thing for them to say no to or, control you know and that was kind of the way she was spinning it um i was the first person to tell her that she had been abused to use that term um and so i saw her go and talk to a counselor once when we were dating but one of the things that i told her when we were dating is like okay if we're gonna get married and stuff like you know we want us to get back together you need to go to counseling to like work some of the stuff out so that this doesn't, this doesn't happen again and she didn't she never she 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 didn't do that uh, so, uh, not then, and I just kind of took her back away because she laid on the charm, and, you know, I, I loved her. So, I had warnings, but I didn't listen to them, and so I got married, and then um, a month after we got married, she hit me, and um, it had kind of, you know, it was one of those, I'm sorry, but you provoked me. Like how? Well, you got into my personal space. And I'm like, well, you know, like, because I'm an immigrant, like, in my culture, you know, like, there's different rules of personal space. But and I've been with them, you know, but I've grown up in the United States. And nobody ever said, had told me before that I was somehow inappropriate when it came to personal space. In fact, I remember one time uh, I was working for somebody, I had a supervisor who was Vietnamese. And when he talked to me, he kind of came in and kind of close. So I would step back and he would come in forward and step back. So I remember that I literally went completely across a room once just talking to him about work stuff because this guy kept coming close into my personal space. And so I would like back up. Right. So I think that I kind of took uh, personal space cues from 
the culture in which I was raised, you know. But anyway, so I just, but she said that it, it you know, that it was because I got in her space or something. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe that's something that I need to work on. But she hit me. But now that I remember, she took two steps to hit me, though. I just said something she didn't like. And she took, like, a step, and she, like, punched me in the chest, you know, like with a hammer fist. Uh, and that was a month after we got married, and so I was thinking about getting divorced, and I didn't. I came back. I loved her. I wanted to work on it. She'd apologize. And the thing is, is that she was then eventually diagnosed with, um, like, some mental illnesses, um, bipolar being one of them. But that wasn't until a few years later that that diagnosis came in. And so... I ended up joining the military, and uh, being a military family can be kind of tough. Uh, we ended up having children, um, and she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder after our second child was born. And I, f- I feel like I we need to pause just for a second because I just want to kind of address a few things that you've said so far. Yeah, go ahead. So I'm, I'm going to go back kind of to the beginning, but we're not going to stay there long and just say, I know that there are very rare cases where when people meet quickly and get married, it works. But overall, what I know of abuse is they are fast moving relationships, high intensity, and they create a very quick bond that mimics love, but is not real because they're playing mental, emotional games. So I just kind of wanted to say that because I feel like that's important to kind of point out and, you know, that you went through that and it sucks going through that. But I also wanted to just kind of ask, because you have said a few times that she would put on the charm or this or that. So when an abuse episode would happen or she would do these things, what were some of the things that she would say or use Um, to manipulate? So there was like different phases um, in our relationship. At first, when she realized that she had been abused and she realized that she had adopted some like her, like rage was like the status quo. So when she'd get really angry, she would come back and she would apologize. And so she would, she would apologize. But then a lot of times it, it wasn't always complete. It was like, uh, she would apologize, but then this, these would be like very long conversations in which she would find a way to kind of say, yeah, but basically I'm sorry, but you shouldn't have provoked me. You know, it's, or, or this is one thing that she'd say later is you saying it's almost like messed up that she said I would push her buttons. And then when she explodes, I turn around and see, Oh yeah, look at you. You're, you're such a angry monster. And that, you know, it's not right to provoke somebody, but pushing their buttons and then turning around and saying, Oh, you need to control your anger. And she said, well, yeah, I do need to control my anger. That's true, but you shouldn't push my buttons. So um, she played the victim a lot. Yes. I mean, it just, yes. And, 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 but you know, like at least she would apologize. Right. And that to me was a big deal because my mom never did that when I was growing up. Uh, she does now, but like when I was a kid, she didn't really apologize ever. So, 
that to me felt like a step up. I felt like I could work with that, you know, but like the, so then this whole thing about me pushing her buttons, now that kind of became this big focus for me in the relationships to not try to push her buttons. And it started with, I mean, there was like things that I would do that were just kind of me. Like I had a very loud laugh at the time. You know, or I would be kind of goofy or my eating habits, um, my body weight. She was very disgusted by fat. And so if I ever had gained weight and, and stuff like that, like I, I was in the military so when I was younger in my military career, like I was uh, in much better shape. And so she liked that. And then if I'd gain weight, it would she would just kind of be grossed out by it, you know, um, and then like. So my end and the way I ate, right? She even said it the way that I ate. It like I'd open my mouth too big and I'd put too much food in my mouth and um, that I was rude and kind of like disgusting that I'd eat too fast. Those are things. And or then there'd be stuff like the way I did the dishes that I wouldn't quite rinse them off the right way or, you know, it. It would be, it didn't really matter what it was. It was like if she said something, that she wanted something done a certain way, and I didn't do things her way, if that, if those kind of added up, eventually she'd say, well, you're doing it on purpose, or it was just very, very controlling. And so it's, at the time, I didn't really see it that way, but looking back, it was just very, very controlling. Yeah. You know, I didn't really feel like I could be me, right? If I was too loud or if I was, you know, to this or to that, you know, that was just unacceptable. You were basically put in a position to walk on eggshells to keep her from getting upset. Uh, yes. And yes, you know, and then, and, you know, there was stuff like, I mean, there were some things that may have been more legitimate, like, you know, like I spent too much money on food or, uh, you know, some things like that, that I think were probably, you know, like we, we had financial struggles. She didn't make a lot of money in the military and she didn't work. So, you know, it's like, um, some, some of those things sometimes I felt were a little more legitimate, but, um, it was almost like I could never, it, it felt like she was unpleasable. Um, she was very difficult to please. And so, Yeah. So then the anger was just something that I feared. And it, I because when it would get really bad, uh, she wouldn't just, she'd be very vicious with her words, but every once in a while I'd get clobbered. So, and as a man, I was like, well, I'm a guy, so I'm just supposed to take it. That was just kind of how I felt. Yeah. And I, I don't believe that that's true because no. what that does is that like when a man beats a woman, he and he's stronger than her he it's abusive because he's abusing the fact that he's physically more powerful and she's not able to defend herself and that's just this horrible thing where it's like you're just oppressing somebody with your power and they're helpless you're taking away that you're making them powerless um well on the other hand when a woman abuses a man and he doesn't hit her back then she's abusing the fact that he won't hit a woman, you know, so she's abusing his morals. She's taking something good about him and using that against him. And then he feels powerless because if a man were to hit another man, there's like a deterrence there, right? Like if a dude comes up and, and, and hits me, and I turn around and hit him back, then he's going to say, well, maybe I shouldn't hit this guy because that hurt. 
right? So there's this kind of like deterrence where you're going to like, okay, maybe I'm going to find another way to solve my problems instead of hitting this guy because I don't want to get hit back. But when a woman hits a guy in a domestic situation, it, it, you don't have that option. Like you can't turn around and hit the person. So then what do you do? You're powerless because, you know, I'm not going to be the kind of guy that hits a girl ever. I've never hit, I've never hit a woman. I'm never going to hit a woman. So that's that. It's and I'd never abused my family, and I'm not going to start. You know. So. Yeah. Well, and there's the difficulty too of you don't even have to hit back. Sometimes any defense of yourself as a man can be twisted with victim playing if there's an abusive woman involved. You know, like I have heard of that happening to people where even just pushing them away to try to protect themselves because they were being pummeled was turned against them later on. Yeah. Like there was never really a consistent set of rules. I always felt like there was one set of rules for me and one for her, you know, um, but I did the best. So I did the best I could to see things her way. But, um, you know, like we were at a marriage conference once and she climbed on top of me and, and pummeled my face like a, you know, like a ground and pound on my face with an open hand. Okay. Like, so it wasn't with her fist, but it was, I remember my head going left, right, left, right, left, right. And in the context of that, she had confessed to cheating on me with some guy at her work. Like she kissed some dude at her work. And so I had confessed that I had been on a plane with a young lady and I had a conversation in which I felt a connection. And so I never talked to the girl again. It was like, I didn't kiss the girl. I didn't sleep with the girl. I didn't do anything. She gave me a ride home. I never got her. I didn't get her number. I never saw her again. Right. So you did nothing wrong. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, you know, she didn't, I mean, I felt a connection and you did nothing wrong, but yeah. I mean, at least I don't think so. I don't know. I felt like I did something wrong. But. No, you did nothing wrong. Yeah. People connect with people. You didn't do anything. You weren't inappropriate. You did nothing wrong. Yeah. I mean, like, well, the, the connection that I felt was like, you know, almost like I was drawn to the person. Kind of felt like, you know, like if you talk to somebody, like if I'd have been single, I'd have been like, wow, like that would have been like a crush. I would have pursued somebody like that, but I was married. And so I was like, Oh crap. Um, yep. I'm feeling that draw. So I never talked to her again (laughs) and I got beat the crap out of for it. So another instance was I had missed, there was one time earlier in our marriage when I had told her that I had missed my ex-girlfriend and I was missing her because, you know, my wife at the time was, I felt very rejected by her at a time in my life in which I was pretty low. Like I was in a certain military program that I'd had and and I didn't pass. Like I didn't succeed. I had a goal for a certain job and I didn't, I didn't achieve that goal. And so I had to find a new job in the military because I failed at the one that I had. And she was really disappointed, you know, because she wanted me, she, you know, believed in me and the job had, considerable social status and it was you know i was feeling really sorry for myself too probably not the best way to deal with it but she was really disgusted by the way that i grieved this loss of this job you know i was just depressed and so 
you know, I started thinking, man, like maybe I kind of missed my ex-girlfriend. So I was thinking, well, maybe like she would have, she wouldn't have treated me this way, you know. And I just told her about it. And I paid for that for years. She, she said it hurt her as bad. She says she would not have been more hurt if she would have caught me sleeping with a girl. And I'm thinking, like, that's insane. Like, I didn't sleep with anybody. I, I just missed somebody in my mind. And so I told you, you about it. Yeah, so you were honest with her. And instead of getting upset and sharing it at the time, she used it against you repeatedly. For years. Well, at the time, at first she was cool about it. You know, and then she started being like really into me, you know, like sleeping with me all the time. And like, you know, and I was like, so I said, I'm like, do you think I'm not going to leave you? I mean, it was just feelings. And the moment that I got that off my chest, I think part of it might have been spiritual. Like maybe there was like demonic attack because I remember I like after I got it off my chest, it like disappeared and I never felt that way again. And I felt I, when I first told her, she was like, oh, okay. And she sounded like, you know, she was like, well, I mean, if you need to, I mean, we can get divorced if you want to go be with her. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. No, no, no. And I came back. I was like, yeah, you know, I feel so much better that I talked to you about that. Well, lo and behold, I found out later that it was just so devastating. And she ne- she didn't let it go for years. To the point, because this girl that I had dated, like some people of her family, like she was a relative of one of my best friend, of my best friend. She was related to him. And so people in his family that I was close to, I basically got cut off from. Like her stepdad was a mentor of mine, and I didn't talk to him for 15 years. He actually advised me when she, when she had slept with the ex-boyfriend while we were dating, I talked to this guy. He advised me not to continue the relationship or at least to get some counseling and healing and space before we went out that because he just saw some red flags. And, well, I married her three months later. And when she found out what he had said to me, I, I literally didn't talk to the guy for 15 years, almost. I mean, I, I saw him once or twice. Um, so, so she had these very extreme reactions to things. Yeah. So in telling you not to talk to him, how did she go about that? I don't want you to talk to him. And it was, it was very, uh, like, she would tear him apart saying that he judged her. And she was, like, vicious about it at first. And, I, I mean, it was one of those things, like, oh, man. Like, I was just trying to be vulnerable and open. And I was trying to say, look, he advised me not to, but I love you so much. I'm going to just do it anyway and, and take the risk. You know, that's where I was going with it. I hope I want her to see that I cared about her and that, yeah, people were saying it's all that as a red flag, but you know, whatever, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm winging it, you know, I'm gonna take the risk. And, um, yeah, well it didn't, uh, I mean, it cost me that relationship. Yeah. You were basically forced to cut off your support system. Um, well, yeah, I mean, at least that, that one, and basically anybody that kind of came between me and her. And so, over the years, that friend, that friend that I had ended up being somebody that she started alienating me from. She would always kind of like find things that he was doing wrong or whatever. And basically, if I talked to him too much, like about our marriage, uh, she'd get pissed. She eventually said, you can talk to him about whatever you want. Just don't talk about me. Don't talk about our marriage. So there would be the years in which we would literally talk about the weather and anything else. And I would be in like severe emotional pain. 
And I didn't want to t- tell him anything because if she ever said, oh, did you talk to this to this guy? I didn't ever want to admit it, you know. So the kind of abuse that I, I, I went through for those years was, um, I mean, it, there was a bunch of different kinds. But it got considerably worse in the last five years. Those were the worst years because for the first. Yeah. Um, so just to pause here and just make note, it sounds like. You went through a lot of isolation and a lot of manipulation during that time frame. Yeah, there was a lot of that. I mean, the military didn't help with that either because uh, there was actually a lot of isolation from my family, too. She didn't like my mom uh, very much at all. And my mom could be a pain, okay? Like, I mean, my mom could be difficult. Um, she can be bossy and demanding, but this woman would put her in her place. And it was like never enough, you know? And then even when my mom was just trying to be nice and help, but my mom can be demanding and, and, and controlling, but she can also has a, is a very big servant's heart kind of person. Uh, and everybody loves my mom and she's good at connecting with people and she's got a lot of relationships. Like there's a lot of good things about my mom. If you can just kind of get past the quirks. Well, the healthiest our relationship ever got with me and my ex was when she was medicated for her mental illnesses. And that came about when I was like on like a semi kind of deployment thing and I had to get sent home because she couldn't take care of the kids. And she had had an encounter where she had, she says she didn't have sexual relations with him, that she just kissed him, but spent the night in the bed with her brother's friend. I mean, I believed her. She had confessed that to me, but she had, you know, done that again. And she was just kind of like spiraling out of control while I was gone. So I had to get sent home early from this like deployment. And she started seeing a psychiatrist and they diagnosed her with bipolar, a few other things. And she started getting better. And, you know, there was, you know, the relationship wasn't perfect, but there was, it was better. She went to counseling for like a year and things improved in our relationship i remember that there was a time there in which those were like some some good times there when she was kind of when she would find medication that would level her out i kind of stopped looking over my shoulder all the time i stopped kind of like watching my back the eggshells weren't so bad but then the medications would kind of make her sick she Tried a bunch of different ones until she found the right ones. It took a while, but when she was on the right meds, like things seemed to be okay. And then I got transferred across the country. She was involved. Oh, and she was also involved in her church and like connecting with people. She was kind of doing the things that people need to do to heal. Um, and she was owning her stuff. She realized that she was a problem, and you know it inspired me to work on my things too. Um, and at the time, she was very appreciative. I, I made sacrifices in my military career to help her. She was very appreciative of those things that I did. And so, you know, like, they they were the best. I mean, yeah, I don't know how else to put it, that they were the best years of our, of our marriage. Um, but then, like I said earlier, when I got transferred across the country, it was almost like there was just this big stressor. She kind of got lost some of that support system and... I think the stress just went through the roof and it seemed like the medications weren't working 
there had been a medication change before she left, which wasn't the smartest thing. And we put her back. She got put back on like the old regimen that she had been on that worked for all that time. And um, unfortunately, she she still would hit me. And at one point there, she smashed a plate of food over my head because it said something she didn't like. And I mean, I was sitting there. On, I was literally in the most non-threatening position. So you can't. She couldn't say it was my body language or anything like that because I was sitting down in a chair with my feet in another chair with my arms crossed on my chest and we were having an argument and you know, I, instead of keeping my mouth shut, like I should have, I, I responded. I don't quite remember what I said, but I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't cuss at her or degrade or anything like that. I, but I just, I kind of said what I felt and she got so angry. She grabbed this plate of food and smashed it over my face. And like the, the plate ended up on the ground and all the food. I still remember the, it was baked chicken and mixed vegetables. And they ended up all over the ground, all over me. And so what did I do? I walked up and I went into a different room and I just closed the door. And I just sat there, you know? So, and like, you know, it didn't happen every day. It didn't happen. Like I wasn't like getting hit daily or weekly or monthly even, but it happened. I mean, it happened yeah. Every once in a while, you know, like if she'd get really mad, she'd throw, I mean, she'd throw something at me, you know, she'd turn around and deck me. So, you know, that's, that's so common, you know, cause it's, it's the abuse cycle. It's usually not an overt abuse episode every day. You know, there are periods of overt abuse and then there's usually some love bombing again afterwards where, you know, they apologize or it gets better for a little bit. And then there's tension, tension, tension until abuse, you know? So it makes it harder because you think, oh, maybe they're getting better or, oh, they seem to be sorry, you know? Well, yeah. And the thing that was confusing was that the hardest part was that what it took to make her happy was never consistent. It was always changed. There's like this old John Mayer song that we talk, you know, the called Daughters. And then there he he says that, you know, it's like at the beginning he says, I know a girl. She puts the color inside of my world. But sometimes she's just like a maze where all the walls continually change. And in the song he goes on saying that, okay, it was because her dad messed her over, you know, in yeah. the song, right? Well, that's kind of how my life felt, that I was in a maze where the walls were always changing. And all I wanted to do was find what, what do we need in order just to be happy? Yeah. You know, I just well, wanted I, just to have a happy, loving family. That's all I ever wanted. And it seems even if she hadn't changed her ideas, the things that she wanted you to do were unreasonable and not healthy a lot of the time. Yeah. Just the way that, yeah. Um, just the way that she thought things, yeah, they, they weren't healthy. I mean, it, it was just like, like she would say, like, so for example, one of the things that she would say was that she wanted our marriage to be a safe place just for her and me, which meant that I, would, I wasn't allowed to talk about our marriage to anybody else. So if I'm talking to my marriage for anybody else, I'm betraying the sacred trust. So it's like this nasty, like, equivocation. Yes, the marriage is supposed to be a safe space for just in, in, in some ways, right? Which, like, 
you know, you don't bring other people into your sex life, for example. Right. right? Yeah. That's an example of the safe space. There is this connection that you have with the person where like you're sharing your finances and you're sharing a life and you're sharing kids. And, you know, there are things in which like when it comes to these big life decisions, you know, things that you kind of defer to the other person or you make those decisions together. Yeah. Like there is a safe space there, but that doesn't mean that you don't talk about how your marriage is going. No. You don't talk about your problems to other people that you love and trust. But yeah, you don't go blab it to whoever. But if it's like my best friend who I've known for since I was 16. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to, you don't want, like, that's somebody who knows me, who knows my family and, you know, basically, like, grew up in my house in high school. You know, it's, um, I just, I don't see that. I don't. Yeah. I don't think that that's reasonable. And, and that isn't that she, the fact that she would interpret me sharing about, um, yeah, my wife just hit me or yeah. Now my wife wants to do this crazy thing or that crazy thing. And she's telling me this and that. I don't see how that is letting somebody else into our safe space. No, if it was safe, then she wouldn't have been upset about you letting people in. Cause she wouldn't have had anything to hide. But unfortunately, you know, she was hiding abuse and she didn't want anyone to know. Yes. And so here's where rumor has it the last five years got really bad. Well, after I got transferred, we started going to um, a Pentecostal church that was we went to a Pentecostal church and my when before we transferred. Um, but it was like Pentecostal light. You know, like we didn't even know it was Pentecostal until like I looked up, you know, you see it like in one of the creeds of the church, right? Yeah. It was an Assemblies of God church and they were, but they were really chill about that. So like they didn't print on nothing, you know, I didn't, I didn't know, you know. And so, but then the church that we went to was more over, it was actually, it was an African-American uh, Pentecostal church and I loved it. I thought it was awesome. And there she claimed that God told her that he was going to heal her. And she, she said that God healed her brain. And so she stopped taking her medication. And then after that, a few months after that is when she said that she started realizing that I was an abuser, you know, and I'm like, what? And so that my problem was pride and so this is where the spiritual abuse got kind of big. She started claiming to be a prophet. Well, like I had told her that I thought she had the gift of prophecy like a few years prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now she started kind of running with that. And uh, she started saying that she was a prophet and that God told her that he was, you know, that he was starting to reveal the hidden, the deep, wretched things in my heart. And that, so, you know, me being into like apologetics and, and seminary and stuff like that, I would like to debate theology. And me being debating was a pride issue, is what she said. And so that God started showing her that I had problems with my pride, that I was a lying, manipulative abuser who's fundamentally selfish at the core and pervasively self deceived because of his pride. And she said that God told her he was going to give me one last chance to repent. And if I didn't, he was going to let her out of the marriage. And she thought it was by, by taking my life. So, so, so she's been abusing you for years. She's lied. She's cheated. But suddenly, well, not suddenly. She was blaming you in other ways before. But 
suddenly it got worse and she's accusing you of all the things that she's done? Um, so one of the problems with abuse is that it can be really long lasting and I'm still kind of working through some of that. It's, it's, it's almost like there's, it's hard for me to believe that she was what she claimed what that I was. Um, but that seems to be the feedback that I'm getting from people. And one of the ways that I got out is by not isolating. I started going to counseling. I started going to counseling three times a week. And I started seeing a male and a female because she said I was a chauvinist, right? Um, my wife did. And so I wanted to make sure I got both perspectives. So and then I started reaching out to people. You know, one of the ways I met Brittany was through a, a group, an online group for uh, Pentecostal and prophetic people that I joined because my wife started following Jennifer Evaz and saying that, you know, she was prophetic and basically started like saying, saying that, oh, this was her problem. She never, she started claiming that her issue wasn't mental illness, was that she had the gift of discerning of spirits in a very, very acute way. And it was almost like mind control. And so she took some of the stuff that Jennifer said and, and reinterpreted her experiences with them. And so I was like, okay, well, let me check some of this out. And so I started to follow. I read all of Jennifer's books. And I joined this group because, you know, I wanted to hear, okay, let me just hear this side. Because my seminary training was kind of from, from a more evangelical, non, it was from a non-Pentecostal seminary. Yeah. So while I had good training in terms of like um, some of the apologetics and some of the uh, like like the theology and some of the you know like exegesis and stuff like that was pretty good. They they didn't go like Jennifer was talking about things I'd never heard of, you know. And so I got a view from a different perspective, and I wanted that. And so you know, being in this group, this was actually, it actually got ended up leading me through that because, um, to this, because it became a way for me to break out of some of this abuse because I was able to test what she would say yeah. with people that claimed to have these experiences. So, you know, I, for, I remember, you know, when I, Brittany, and when I first started talking with you, we talked, I talked, I asked you a million questions about your prophetic gifts and how does it look and could it be this or could it be that? Because, that was just something that Jane had been saying is that she was prophetic and that God would be revealing to her, like what I was hiding in my heart, you know? Um, and so she said that I was that lying abuser person and that I wouldn't face it. And I'm like, I, I couldn't see it, you know, I couldn't see it. And so eventually the way that I ended up getting out of the abuse is that she kidnapped my children one day. Um, and it was like this thing where when she started following Jennifer Evaz, I started feeling some hope that maybe this would finally be the thing that could save my family and save my marriage, you know, because I did everything I could. I mean, I went on a real, I, I did a 30 day water fast to try to kill pride. I mean, my mom had cancer and I stopped talking to her because my wife said that you know, my mom was using that to manipulate me. We got kicked out of, well, 
we went through like seven churches in five years. And so whenever she'd say there's something wrong with the church, I'd say, okay, we pack up and go somewhere else. We left the African-American church uh, because she claimed the pastor was like looking at her breasts and, you know, that he, you know, he's an 80 year old man. And uh, I just have to stop for just a second and just say she wouldn't let you talk to your mom when she had cancer because she said your mom was using her cancer diagnosis to manipulate you. Yes. Yes. So something that your mother was actually going through that was real and true. Yeah. Yes. Because after she was healed a few months after my parents and her parents came to visit us because I was going to baptize our youngest child. And when that happened, it was Jane told me she wanted a divorce out of the blue and it was shocking and my parents began doubting the healing and I kept saying no 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 she was healed right because like, I believed it and at that point I began wondering that maybe what Jane had was a personality disorder I started thinking she might have had borderline personality just because I could fit right yeah like and so I was like well maybe God healed bipolar and she had borderline personality I don't know I was trying to grasp the straws. At this point, I'm not a doctor. I've been over this so many times. I've kind of like made my head hurt. All I know is that you will know them by their fruits. So I, I can't help her. That's all I do know is that I can't help her anymore. Yep. Um, and that was a big, a big one. But at this point, so my parents were doubting the healing and they were trying to, you know, blow the whistle on some of this, on some of the crazy that was going on. And so because of that, she felt like they were a threat. And so um, she was holding on to that healing pretty hard Um, because I think that what happened is that it wasn't just the fact that it was like she wanted to hold on for that miracle because the meds, the medication was hard. It was also something else. It wasn't just the fact that the medication was hard um, and that she wanted to have faith for healing. I think it was the fact that she didn't have to be the problem anymore. And she didn't have to do the kind of work that she did facing herself every day and like having to apologize and having to, you know, think through the fact that the way she felt did not match reality. You know, if you feel like, I'm sorry, if you feel that if you feel the kind of pain that you would watch walking in, like if you feel if your husband misses his ex-girlfriend, and that he tells you that, and that generates a kind of hurt in you that is equivalent to you walking in and, uh, as if you would have walked in and caught him sleeping with his ex-girlfriend. That's not, a, there's something wrong with how, with your cognitive apparatus. There's something wrong with how your body's processing feelings. Those don't fit. You know what I mean? If, if you feel like your husband's sharing about his marriage, like what's going on in the marriage with, his best friend is letting other people into the safe space of your marriage as if you're letting, you know, you're bringing somebody into your sexual relationship or something that is not, you know, I'm not trying to invalidate your feelings, but your feelings are broke, dude. Well, it's not even so much about the feelings. Honestly, it's about control. The way I see it. When you told her that you missed your ex, she didn't react then. She didn't get upset. She was in total control of her emotions. And then she persistently and consistently used that against you 
for years after the fact, keeping you away from people because you f- she felt like it was an intrusion into your marriage. That wasn't because she was feeling emotionally violated. That's because she knew she was abusing you and she didn't want anyone to know. You know, people that are abusive use a lot of excuses to abuse you and they will use emotion as one of the manipulation tactics, claiming that you have hurt them or that, you know, you made them feel a certain way or that you did something wrong. And, you know, someone can feel any way they want to about something, but choosing to abuse as a result of any feeling is never okay. And the thing that really struck me when you mentioned that, you know, she wasn't upset about your ex-girlfriend at first, but then was later, is that she was able to control her emotions in that moment when most people would be hit with them first. But then instead of dealing with it, she continually brought it up as weapons and ammo later on, which is like such a pattern of manipulation. But you're right, you know, you're right in the sense of having to face yourself is hard. When someone has narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder or chooses to abuse, they don't want to take responsibility. And part of healing is, as you said, being accountable and taking responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think I think borderline is is definitely the the better fit for her because, you know, I looked at, I'm not a doctor, but I look over the symptoms and I'm like, dude, you know, you need five out of nine of those. And I've seen all of them at different points, almost all of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, loss of contact with reality. I've seen, you know, the, the, the idealization and devaluation. That one's terrible. When she would idolize me, I, I mean, I couldn't do wrong. And then all the things that, I mean, and that was great. And then when I'd be devalued, I couldn't do right. You know, sudden mood changes. I mean, uh, unstable patterns in her relationships. It destroyed. She, she didn't have friends that lasted. She would yeah. destroy all of her relationships. And she yeah. destroyed mine. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and you brought up a good point. Idealiz- idealization and devaluation. So... I know what those mean. You obviously know what they mean because you've studied it. But what does that look like in so, action? So, the, so the the things that I listed off were the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. They um, exist and, in all abusive relationships, though. Yes. Yeah. You need and you need five. There's like nine diagnostic nine uh, in the DSM. There's nine uh, like tra- symptoms. You need five out of the nine. So uh, what idealization and demonization or devaluation are is when you're looking at something and it's like very all or nothing. So a person, a human being, becomes when you idealize them, it's like they can do no wrong. So you focus so, on their virtues. Like I would be for you with her. What would that look like? How did it feel when she was in that uh, mode? Dude, it was awesome. Like <laughs> that. Like I mean, she would be super affectionate. She would be complimenting me all the time. Uh, we would just be happy-go-lucky. She would just tell, like, tell me how happy she was to have me. What a good man that I was, you know. How like basically I was just like this perfect guy, and how lucky she was to be with me. Kind of thing. I mean, it was like whoa. I mean, it's like what you 
call love bombing. Right. Is what it felt like. It was definitely that, you know, it was, um, but it, it was just seeing me as a very great Christian man. I mean, she believed that I was going to make it through that, you know, that the job that I wanted in the military and, you know, that I was just a hero. Um, Acted so, like you hung the stars. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember when we were dating, I would, I mean, it was, a, you know, I first started meeting her family and we were there at breakfast and, and we were there in her kitchen and her dad was cooking, and, you know, and Jane would just come up and tackle me with a hug out of nowhere all the time. And her whole family was like looking at her saying like she never acted like that with any with anybody they had ever seen, you know. And it was nice. Like it was nice. It felt good. Yeah. Love bombing does feel good. She wanted to talk to me all the time and you know, and she wanted to sleep with me all the time when when we'd be in that phase and you know, and then when we were married, when those things the thing is, is that the idealization became less as time would go by, you know. So, like, the more things that I did to to let her down or hurt her or more grievances over the years, um, idealization shifted to hope that I would overcome those things and be this great man. And there was one time, I remember, when I did that 30-day fast. That fast, I don't know what it was. That thing kind of, like, got through to her. <laughs> In some ways, because it was one time when she said that she saw me become the man she'd always wanted. When I stood up to that pastor that did the healing for her and told him that he had set himself up as an idol in the church and, you know, stood my ground and been brave. And at that point, I felt like, ah, well, I lost a church, but at least I got my wife. You know? We got through that divorce phase. We'll be good, you know. And uh, nope. It didn't have, it didn't last. And so, like, those things would change. Um, now, how about the devaluation and the demonization? Those were times in which I couldn't do anything right, man. That's when I walked in eggshells the most. That's when I was just the lying, manipulative abuser who was fundamentally selfish at the core and pervasively self deceived because of his pride. You know, that's when I became, that's what I was. And, you know, or I was too fat, you know. She 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 said that I sexually abused her because I was overweight. You know, I mean, I didn't look at porn. I didn't uh, go to strip clubs. I didn't like leer after women. I didn't date other women. I never was unfaithful ever. Okay, like I was faithful the whole marriage. I didn't have a girlfriend on the side. Nothing. No side hustle chick. Nothing. You know, and in fact, she told me, even to the point where she told me that because of her sexual abuse history, that um, me, like, initiating sexual relations with her made her feel, she didn't like how that felt, it kind of made her feel, it triggered some stuff. So I stopped asking, and I would wait for it to be her idea, sometimes weeks or months until she'd be in the mood and for her to initiate. And I stopped for the last five years. I didn't initiate. Yeah. And so then for her to, so then she turned around and said that I was sexually abusive. I'm like, well, how? She said, well, because you're fat. <laughs> because, you know, you're attracted to me. And I mean, she was very beautiful. And, uh, and uh, she's like, well, you know, you're attracted to me and you don't care about being an attractive spouse in return. And I'm like, dude, 
you know, and she said, that's sexual abuse. Look it up. <laughs> and so I asked my therapist and every therapist I ever asked said that was ridiculous. Yep. And so, you know, I mean, I felt, uh, you know, yeah, that, that is the place where I struggled, you know, like I struggled with my weight, right? Like, you know, even in the military, right? Like that's, that's kind of a struggle. I'm not obese or anything like that. Like, you know, but you know, I'm not the way that I looked when I was 18 years old. So like, I don't have abs or anything. Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm sorry that I, I, you know, that she didn't get to have a better partner, like that looked better, but so those were the different, the different ways that I had been abused. Yeah. Um, and they did a real big number on my self-esteem and they did a big number on just how I perceived myself. It really caused me to struggle my relationship with God to the point that the only prayer that I could pray for years was God just to help me. Yeah. Just make this stop. Yeah. Like, please. I'm like, if she's right and I'm the problem, then please, can you just change me? Here I am. Change me. And I throw myself on the altar and ask God to change me and, and, and like, make me somebody that she could just say, you know, if she, if she was his prophet. I mean, you got to be on the kind of mind game that that is. I, I just, oh, like, I'm talking about it now and I'm getting dizzy just thinking about it. Yeah. Mega mind games. Well, and I just want to make note here for anyone listening and for you, though I know I've told you this before, that it is so common in abusive situations, specifically psychological, emotional abuse, for the victim to be blamed for the abuse, the lying, the cheating, whatever else. It's projection. Usually what they are accusing you of is exactly what they're doing. So a lot of people are either still in abuse or coming out of it, and they wonder, am I the problem? Did I do this? Could I have done something better, you know? But anyone who really knows abuse and how abuse operates, any specialist in abuse, counselors and whatnot, would tell you that the fact that you're asking, the fact that you want to know if it's you and you want to get better is actually one of the surest signs that you are not the abuser, that you are the victim. Because when someone is abusive or acting as an abuser, they don't want to view themselves. They don't wonder if it's them. It's always about projecting it on the other person. They do not question themselves. So even the very fact that you are like, God, if it's me, just take this from me, shows that you were not the abuser in that because you were willing to face whatever you needed to, to heal, to fix it, to do whatever. And the real hard stuff with that was that I went on these quests of repentance and self-discovery. I mean, like, you know, in seminary, I would take my classes and really throw myself into them. And what would happen was is that so there would, there would be, I remember these times when she said that she had visions of Jesus saying that he was approving of me, that I finally made it and that I was finally submitted to him and working through, he was working through me, you know, like, oh, okay. and after the fast, I lost like 45 pounds in 30 days because I drank nothing but water for 30 days. And, you know, it took me a year and I gained the weight that I lost back. And so then she said that I had regressed. 
you know, that I had walked back on my repentance, dog going back to his own vomit. And, uh, like, at that point, I mean, because I knew that I was walking with God tighter, and I knew that I, like, the pride stuff, I knew that stuff had gotten better. I went after pride with everything I got, you know. Yeah. And so I, I just, I knew that I did better. And that I wasn't saying I'm perfect. Like, you know, we still got, always got pride to work with. But, you know, like, that's, that's a toughie. But... I knew that I was better. So one day she says that she told me she wanted the divorce again. And I'm like, what? After like two years, like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, why? She says, well, you've regressed. I'm like, how? You know? And like, there wasn't things that I was doing. Like I have never hit her. Right. But like the way that she said that I had been physically abusive before was because of the way that I used my size and my mannerisms and the way that I would use my voice and my and space to intimidate and control people. Mm. And, you know, she had a personal space bubble. I used to joke around like dancing around the house with like my hands all the way outstretched, like doing like little circles and stuff. Saying, yeah, this is that this was her personal space, like. You know, we joked about it, but no, it was like true, dude. And like, that's that's how she was with her personal space, and so she, so I knew that that one. I was like, I'm not doing that, like, because yeah. like I had been far more aware of how I use space and keeping my voice down, and so it went from you know, and I was wasn't argumentative, and then what ended up happening is she started monologuing loud more and more and more, and if I ever interrupted her, then all of a sudden this was a sign that I was being argumentative and arrogant because I didn't, I wasn't being a good listener. She would monologue. I'm talking for like 15 minutes at a time, 20, 30 minutes. And, and I couldn't say a word Wow. for longer, you know? And so it just, yeah. So I knew that I didn't, I'm like, what's going on with this one? And then all of a sudden, you know, I would leave on a military assignment for like three weeks. Her mom would come back and take care of the kids. Right. Yeah, and then all and all of a sudden she'd write me emails saying that you know God wants us to heal our marriage and you know I don't know what it is God did a miracle I'm like I I didn't do anything I literally was gone yeah you know and I come back and it lasts for a few weeks and then it can't you know it, it it's just the cycle always kind of came back and what ended up happening was she ended up kidnapping my children. And I didn't know where they were for a week. Um, and she left for like two months. And she came back. And during that, when she came back, eventually things started escalating and cycling again. And she she hit me in front of our son. And he got caught on video. And she got arrested. So that was... And then what started tipping it is that even though she got, I didn't want her to get arrested. Like I went to the cops, right? Because I just wanted to put like a police report in or something, but there was a law where I live where like, if they, the cops see proof of domestic violence, they have to make an arrest. Yeah. And there was a video where the chick hit me in the face. and had a picture of my face. It had like a brute, like a mark on it, you know? And so well, what she ended up doing is that then she took out like a restraining order against me saying that I was abusing the family. So and she hit you. You had an order of protection. She was arrested. And then after all of that, she tries to reverse it and get one against yeah. you. Yeah, because they, 
they, they give this like restraining order thing like automatically because she had hit me they just for like three days. I didn't ask for it. I told them to do the least strong one possible, right? Um, and I just want to throw her bone. Well, then she she disappeared, and then I got kicked out of my own house. So then I hired a lawyer, and she didn't show up in court. And then so then I'm like, well, then I was a little worried. So I'm like, well, I mean, maybe I need one because I don't want to live with somebody who's going to kick me out of the house at any time. Yeah. Like making up crazy stuff. I don't want to be, and especially since like, and I told my lawyer, I'm like, I don't know. Like, he's like, do you think she's going to hit you again? And at first I'm like, well, I don't. Yeah, I told him, I don't think she's going to hit me again. He's like, okay, well, did you think she was going to hit you when she hit you? I said, no, <laughs> no way. Like, there was a camera. Like, of course I didn't think she was going to hit me. Uh-huh. Yeah. What about when she smashed a plate of food over your head? Did you think she was going to hit you then? I was like, no, I didn't. I didn't I didn't have a clue. I, I, yeah. I didn't think she would do it. Okay, what about when you were at that marriage conference and she climbed on top of you and smashed your face like that? Did you think she was going to hit you then? I'm like, no, I didn't. Way to so put like, it into perspective, lawyer. I, he was, it was, it was like he slapped me in the face of the truth. He's like, "Don't you realize? Maybe there's you need to think about this. You never think she's going to hit you, and then she does." And I was like, "Crap!" He's like, "So yeah, I do think you're justified in asking for one of these so that you can have some space." Yeah. So I did, and they gave her a very, very light one where it was just like no hostile contact, right? So it just, but then she, right, she took off, and then it was crazy for a while. You know, the stuff with my kids was crazy. And eventually she got convicted. And she said she was going to move across, you know, to like where her parents lived. And so she got out of like probation for that. And they just, you know, because she said she was going to move. And so they just told her to take like an anger management class and not to have hostile contact with me for two years. And that's because she would have had to do her time, so to speak, in that state, but she was going to be moving out of state. Yeah. So there's, all right, well, she's going to move out of state. So then they figured that it would be fine. You know, like she's not going to be around me. She's out of state. Right. And so she went to do that, but she came back a month later and then she started like manipulating. Yeah. And she homeworked the family at that point. So she dated a married guy. And destroyed his family. But before that, she was around you again, right? So, well, she was gone for a month, mm-hmm. and it was like peaceful. Mm-hmm. And she came back, and she was just going to pack her things to, you know. And That's leave. what she told you, right? Yeah, she said she's going to pack her stuff and leave, and take the kids for spring break and on little vacations and leave. Okay, but she didn't because she met this dude, and she started seeing him turned out the guy was married you know and she denies that but i i had video footage of this guy kissing her was she honest about dating that guy or was she living with you at the time she was living with me and she got me kicked out of my house and still living in my house so she was dating that dude and did she tell you that she was dating him did she admit it um not directly so i confronted her about it and she said this is none of your business I said, are you dating somebody? She's like, what I do and what I don't do is not your business. Meanwhile, she was in your house and, and she had said she was leaving. And she said, she said, what I do is not your business. Our marriage is over. Now, here's the thing. This is actually what happened. So right before she was convicted, when I wanted to go to counseling to heal the marriage. And she at first said she would go. And then she went to one session and 
told the counselor that I was abusing her. And at that point is when she started having like paranoid delusions. She started saying that I was like hacking her phone and tracking her and all this crazy stuff. And so, yeah, at that point it just got like crazy with, with that. And, and so she just turned around and, and basically, uh, like started going off the deep end. So I, I said, look, we need to go to counseling for us to heal this marriage. Like I can't, this is toxic for us to live in this house like this. So if you don't go to counseling, we're going to have to go to get a divorce. And she wouldn't yeah. go to counseling. And I said, look, you think that I'm a lying abuser. I think that you're mental health. I, I don't think you're healed. Okay. Like I'm just going to say, I don't think you're healed anymore. Either you're not healed or you have a personality disorder. Maybe you yeah. got healed of bipolar and you got a personality disorder or you're never healed. I don't know. I'm not a pro, but let's go to a therapist and go in deep. I'll tell my side of the story. You tell yours yeah. and we'll let them judge between us. And if I'm wrong and you're right, I'll repent and I'll do whatever it takes because I need their help because I don't see it. So I need to be in counseling where you're there balancing out my, you know, self-deception. And if I'm right, then you need to get help. So let's have a professional judge between us is what I said. Well, she wouldn't go. She wouldn't go. And so I said, okay, well, then we're going to have to get a divorce. Yeah. And so then she was convicted. Then she said she was going to move. She was going to leave me the kids. But then when she started dating this dude, eventually she she took out a protective or another you know restraining order thing and got me kicked out of my house, saying that I was abusing the family. Like I took away my daughter's dog and her phone. It was literally just out of like a consequence, you know, for you know, she said she didn't like me or something. I said, all right, well, then I'm taking this. Well, she wrote on the affidavit of the restraining order that she caught me abusing my daughter and beating the dog. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do any of that. I didn't lay yeah. a hand on anybody. And she would have got me kicked out of the house, and I appealed it. And some stuff came out there that was even worse, you know. And so, like, stuff with our kids and stuff. And so the protective orders were dropped and now I'm just kind of, we're going through the divorce and I haven't lived with her in almost a year and I'm doing so well. Yeah. Like I just, I've never been this happy, <laughs> you know, like it's, and I, I, I can't begin to tell your audience how nice it is not to be torn down all the time. Yeah. Um, not to live in that toxicity. Not to deal uh, with chaos and drama. No, I'm here with, you know, I got I got my son with me, and we get along really well. Like, I'm not, nobody's abusing anybody. There's respect going both ways. It's peaceful. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got my dogs, and I can't begin to tell you just how good it is. And then, like, in my relationship with God, I felt that. God helped me get out of there because I got to tell you that when I got kicked out of my house, I was absolutely devastated. Yeah. And a few weeks ago we went to court and there was a ruling that was not in my favor. And it, the judge made a big mistake. He didn't listen to my evidence. He didn't call my witness. So I had to make an appeal, but like, in that moment, like my lawyer was furious, right? But in that moment, I felt transcendent peace. I knew that I was going to be okay. Yeah. No matter what happened. And 
I had been praying for transcendent peace forever. And by transcendent peace, I mean that peace that transcends your circumstances. And no matter what's going on, you can kind of like touch that peace. And the Bible promises that, you know. Yes, the um, peace that surpasses all understanding. Yeah, because you can have peace in the middle of a storm. It's the kind of peace that Jesus had when he's asleep on the back of a boat and the disciples are freaking out in the middle of the storm. You know, the kind of peace that a spiritual director said, imagine if you could just go back and snuggle next to Jesus while he's sleeping in the middle of that storm. And I'm like, man, do I want that. So that kind of peace. And I felt it when that happened in the, in the ruling. I, I was okay, you know. And it'll be fine because, you know, there's an appeal. So it'll be, it's not a big deal. But the point is, is that I just, I can't begin to tell you how much better I'm doing. Yeah. It's amazing how much better life gets when you're not constantly in a toxic environment. And, you know... I say this a lot to survivors and people that are either still in abuse or getting out and healing. You know, you can't be your best self in a toxic environment. If you're being abused, you can't be the best version of yourself. So often those situations actually bring out the worst in us because it's not healthy, you know, and then it right along with all of the devaluation that's already happening, it can mess with you. But You get out of that toxic cycle, you get out of that toxic situation, and suddenly you can breathe, and life gets easier, and you gain things, you know, and you start realizing, wait, life isn't chaos all the time when that person's not around, you know? Honestly, yeah. And the pieces start lining up, and I know sometimes it's a process, realizing And healing enough to realize I really wasn't the problem. This really was abuse. This is what I've gone through. Sometimes the full revelation of that can be a process, but being away from it, like you said, is that process. It's like, oh, okay. This is what it feels like to not walk on eggshells. This is what it's like to have a conversation with someone that doesn't turn everything against me, you know? Yeah, how to actually, and you can't connect. When you're in an abusive relationship, all I wanted was real connection, true connection, to know another and be known. And you can't have it. Yeah. Not there. Because you're not connecting with the real person. You're connecting with a false self that they set up. And the real person hides. And it got to the point where she was saying, dude, I don't, you're not going to have that with me, man. Sorry. Just go find yourself another wife is what she used to say. Yeah. Well, and, you know, going with what you just said, it goes back to that ideally idealization and devaluation. Even in the idealization, that's a mask. That's a projection. You know, they do that because they try to latch on to you. But what they're really doing is projecting yourself back to you or mirroring you. So it's not a real person that you fall in love with. It's what they want you to see. You know, a lot of the time, I've seen people say, you know, you didn't actually fall in love with them. You fell in love with yourself because they were mirroring you back to you. Kind of a crazy thought, but it's like you said, you know, it's not a real person. It's whatever mask they're putting on. You can't have that connection because it's not really them. Yeah. So what would you say are some things that you have gained since being out? You already said peace and that kind of transcendent peace. What are some other things that you have gained that have enriched your life since getting out? 
relationships with my family and friends. You know, uh, I've got new friends. And the thing is, is I needed a team of people. The manipulation was so bad. When you're manipulated as bad as, especially spiritually abused, mm-hmm. because, like, if they're trying to tell you that God is going to kill you, you know, that God is telling them that you're a lying, manipulative abuser and that you're selfish and self-deceived because your pride is through the roof. And, you know, that's what they're telling you all the time. And so you're going into prayer and it's hard to hear. Yeah. When it's like that, like you can't hear anything because it's all, all I heard, I'd go to the prayer closet and it'd just be just jumbled noises, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just nothing but confusion. So, the clarity is helpful. And one of the ways that I got it is because God brought a team of people in various contexts who didn't know each other, who weren't communicating and who were giving me honest feedback Yeah. on what she was saying, you know, what they were getting, you know, what they were experiencing from me directly. And so that to me was huge. So just having those relationships is definitely something that I gained. And the final thing that I gained is hope. Mm. I truly have hope. I have discovered who I am in God's kingdom. In fact, I got to say that I'm almost looking back on it now. I would go through it again if it meant that I could have some of the things that God built during that time. I'm not saying that you know I would go through it again in the future, but like if I had to relive my life, and I knew what the outcome would be. I, I'm seeing, I've seen, you know, the blessings of the Lord. I've seen God just show up for me. Yeah. And it just fills me with hope. A hope that I didn't have before because it was, she killed my hope every day, you know. Yeah. And now I can turn around and see that I, uh, that I'm going to be okay, you know, that, um, that things will be fine. That you know that that God really does have a future for me. And he hasn't given up on me, and Amen. God's with me. You know, and that um, that my future is bright. Like it's just I have I have hope now that I didn't have before. Yes, just makes me think of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. God has good plans for you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Yeah. And he does. And there is. So I kind of want to go through just like a quick summary. And then I have a question for you also. Well, technically two questions. One, how long were you with her before you finally got away completely? 15 years. 15 years? Well, actually, actually, if you count dating, it was 16. Okay. So over the span of 16 years. Yeah, because one of the videos that I got of her kissing the the boyfriend happened on our 16th anniversary from when we met. Okay. So when I say summarize, I don't mean go through everything again, but so 16 years. So in the very beginning, it seemed like, oh, wow, this is amazing. You know, she acted like you hung the stars and... You thought you fell in love, but some red flags, but you thought it'd be okay. Get married. There are some incidents early on, but not super terrible right away. 
and you went through some rocky years and it just kind of got progressively worse. And it wasn't until you said the last five years that it got the worst, right? Yeah. So it was, so it got a little better in the middle. Um, yeah. When she, start, when she started uh, treatment for, men, for mental illness. Yeah. But how long and did that, that last? Um, that lasted about four years, four or five. And during four that years. time, it got better, but she Actually, was... Actually, it was four. No, it was, it was like four, maybe not even four. So during that time, it got better, but she was still abusing you emotionally, right? Uh, sh- yeah. I mean, that was hard, you know. Um, it got even, no, even the abuse stuff got better. Yeah, I mean, it started happening, but no, it got better. It got better, yeah. but it was still happening. I'm not sure. Maybe. Yeah, like there were a couple of instances, but not. Honestly, I think so. It's just, it's hard to kind of remember. I think so. It, it probably was, too. Like, there was still some emotional abuse going on there, yeah. But there was hope because it was getting so much better. I think what it is, I remember being filled with hope then, saying, well, you know, there was still stuff where there was, like, alienation from family and friends at hmm. times. Um, there was a couple of times that it was just, you know, you still had to walk on eggshells sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. But it was just so much better, man. So alienation from family and friends and walking on eggshells is abuse. Because that's not how normal healthy relationships function, which I know you you know now, you know. Yeah. But that's the thing. I, I wanted to bring that up just because a lot of the time when people are in abusive situations, there is often a sense of false hope brought up. When the person who has been abusing you feels like they're losing control on some level, maybe they feel out of control themselves. Maybe they get to a rock bottom in some way or another. Maybe they think they're losing control of you. And sometimes they will say they're going to change and act like they're going to. But until you really see front to back change and real long-term shift, it's it's not real. It might get better for a period. It usually does get better for a period, you know, mm-hmm. especially after really big abuse episodes. It's usually it's pretty calm for a period. It might even seem really good again for a while, you know, but I can't remember who said it, but you know, there's someone who said something like, I don't believe words. I don't believe actions. I believe patterns. That's a good one. I haven't heard that one. Because when we look at words alone, you know, we need actions to words to know if they're true. When we look at actions alone, we can't really judge anything by that because someone could do a really good action in this one scenario where they're going to get something out of it or for a period of time, but then go the opposite way. And how do you know what's what? Well, you observe the pattern over time, you know? Yeah. And actually, in those hard years, in the years of the, like the mental illness stuff, there was that time she hit me with a plate. She was medicated when she did that. Yeah. So, so, so that was during the better years she hit you with a plate. Yeah, but it was at the end of the better years when we had moved across the country. So I got to be honest. I don't know. It's all a bit of a blur. Um, well, it's hard, too, because, you know, when you're in abuse, any reprieve feels so much better. But you're essentially not just you, any of us who have been through it when you're in it, 
you are being groomed from the beginning, you know, to the point that you become more tolerant of things that if you had them there in the very beginning, you would never have tolerated, you know? So I just kind of wanted to go through that to just show that there was a pattern over time of things not being, being good and then not being great and then being better and then not being good and then seeming a lot better and then being even worse. And as you said, the worst part of it was the last five years, but that went on over a 16 year span. So I just bring that up to say, if there's anyone out there going through abuse, look at the pattern. If any of this resonates with you, whether it be the physical aspect or the emotional aspect when it comes to isolation or walking on eggshells, that kind of a thing, feeling devalued, look at the pattern over time and know that if that behavior, that abusive behavior exists, it doesn't get better over time. It gets progressively worse. There might be moments where there's hope for change, but unless someone is willing to take absolutely full responsibility for their actions and change completely and do all of the things that they need to, to heal and fully take responsibility, change is not happening. And I don't say that to give anyone a lack of hope, but to take away any toxic false hope so that you can have the real kind that John Deere here has shared. You know, you said now you have hope. I do. Real hope. Yeah. Yeah, that I can just be happy on this side of the grave. Yeah. You know, be happy before I go to heaven. That'd be kind of nice. Yeah. That you don't have to take abuse, that you don't have to yeah. walk on eggshells. Yeah, and that I can help other people and that I can that I do have a purpose that God has made me for, you know. Yeah. And you have healthy relationships now with people. I do. Friendships. You know, things that you weren't allowed to have on some level before. Not to this capacity, at least. Yeah. Sometimes I think we have to let go of the false hope so that we can grab hold of the true hope that God has for us that's so much greater. So much greater than what we could have imagined. Because it's the difference between like a counterfeit hope and a true hope that is this beautiful future that God has laid out for us with the things that we actually need and desire, you know, with, with our heart of hearts. Right. I agree with that. So one last question. Okay. If you could leave the audience with one thought or encouragement bit of wisdom from our episode today, what would it be? If all you can do is pray, God help me, then just pray, God help me, and trust that he will, because that's good enough. Like, God knows what it's like when you're out of words, and when it hurts so bad and you're so twisted up that you're not allowed, you won't allow yourself to really even think the truth. And all you can just say, the only truth that you can utter is, God, please just help me. He will. Yes. You're not alone. He'll That's take right. you home. Yep. Doesn't matter where we've gone. God loves us and he is there. So good. So I just want to finish out this episode by saying, 
if there is anyone listening that has experienced this or is experiencing this and might need help getting out, yes, there is a domestic abuse hotline that you can look up online. It's an 800 number, but if you are a man that has experienced abuse and you have reached out to some of those resources and really not gotten help, I just want to say that you can reach out to me through social media or the podcast and I can connect you with some resources. I did start a group, not just me, but Shannon Davis and I started a group called Bold that is for men who have experienced abuse. And what we wanted to do was to create a space where men could share with each other about what they've been through so that they know that they're not alone. Because I think that one of the things that happens is it's very common that people will talk about women going through abuse, but it's so rare that anyone shares about a man who's gone through abuse. And yet it's just as common for men to be abused as women, you know, and you got to hear what it can be like being on the other side of that. So I know how important it is to understand that you're not alone and that you're not crazy. And I just want to encourage you that if you are experiencing any of that, do not be afraid to reach out. And as our friend here today said, if the only thing you can pray is God help me, then pray that because he will and he does. And even if you can't feel it right now, God loves you. And even if you're angry at him in a moment, He'd rather you bring that anger to him than go in another direction. Because when you give those things to him, he can work with that and heal things for you. So thank you so much for coming on tonight and sharing your story with us. I know it's not easy. Yes. I know it's not easy to talk about this kind of stuff. And I know you're still you know, in the process of fully unraveling. So I just, I really appreciate you doing this. And I'm just grateful because I know that in sharing your testimony, it will help others. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining us. I look forward to talking with you next week. Have a fabulous week. Begin when you learn.